0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
1: I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist Dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: On March 8th, 1971, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier went 15 rounds at Madison Square Garden. It was billed as the fight of the century. About 100 miles south, while Ali and Frazier traded blows, A group of burglars crept down the hallway of a three-story building in Media, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. The county court apartments. The building was mostly residential, but there were a couple of government offices there too, including a local FBI office. It was the perfect night for a burglary. The streets were empty. Millions of Americans, including presumably those living in the county court apartments, were glued to their television sets. The burglars stole more than a thousand documents from the FBI's office.
3: Burglars hit an FBI resident office and took files which subsequently have been made public. Now the nation's security agencies are wondering whether small offices like that are adequately protected.
2: The thieves were part of a group that called itself the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. In the days after the burglary, they photocopied reams of documents and sent them to reporters all over America. One of those documents, a single page, had a curious acronym on it, COINTELPRO. The reporters started trying to make sense of what they received, ferreting out sources, requesting more documents through the Freedom of Information Act, suing for records. On December 6, 1973... Almost two-and-a-half years after the break-in, Carl Stern of NBC News revealed the COINTELPRO against the New Left.
3: The documents prove for the first time that the FBI undertook a program in 1968 to harass and destroy New Left political organizations whose views the federal police agency disagreed with. Wrote FBI Director Hoover, We must frustrate every effort of these groups and individuals to consolidate their
2: forces. More revelations followed. Reports of the FBI opening citizens' mail, tapping phones, infiltrating domestic political movements. The U.S. Senate decided someone needed to be held to account and not just by the press.
0: After the twin political crises of the Vietnam War and the Watergate political scandal, there's sort of a critical mass forming in the U.S. Senate in particular they've decided that they just have to face this problem.
2: Kate Scott is the associate historian of the U.S. Senate.
0: Are these agencies, like the FBI and the CIA, violating the constitutional rights of U.S. citizens? There are enough people within the Senate who are determined to find out, and they decide to create this special committee, which becomes known as the Church Committee.
2: The committee was named for its leader, Senator Frank Church, a Democrat from Idaho. Before the Church Committee was formed in 1975, there was virtually no congressional oversight of the FBI. For more than four decades, J. Edgar Hoover's interaction with Congress consisted mostly of him coming to Capitol Hill for budget hearings, and he always got the money he asked for. These next two episodes are about the reckoning that finally came first through the church committee, and then through the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Decades of abuse under the banner of COINTELPRO came to light, not just of prominent targets like Martin Luther King, but of regular people too, student protesters, civil rights activists, including some of my father's clients, whose stories you've already heard. But there were other things that didn't come to light too an operation even more secret than COINTELPRO, one that helps to explain why Congress didn't look deeper into the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. This information was buried among the thousands of documents I fought the government for when I set out to discover what had happened to Howard Mechanic. And what I learned was that Howard was just one small fly caught in a very big web. I'm Nina Gildan-Seavey, and this is My Fugitive. The Church Committee was given just 16 months to conduct its investigation into what the CIA had done abroad and what the FBI had done at home.
4: One of the things I did early was to suggest to the committee, we can't possibly cover everything. We have to make choices. If we tried to cover everything, we would do nothing well.
2: That's F.A.O. Schwartz. His great-grandfather owned the famous toy store. This F.A.O. Schwartz is a lawyer and was the chief counsel for the church committee.
4: I remember coming back and giving the committee a list of the things we thought we should emphasize, and it was like 15 or something like that.
2: So they start to dig. They comb through 110,000 documents, depose 800 witnesses. In a series of public televised hearings, they expose COINTEL pros against civil rights activists and anti war protesters. In one hearing, Curtis Smothers, minority counsel for the committee, told the story of Jane Sauer, my father's client who was a member of the St. Louis group, Action.
5: If you look to tab 9-4 of your books, you will see the Bureau's report on a COINTELPRO effort against a white female who was involved as an officer in what is defined as a local Black activist group. Smothers
2: didn't use Jane's name before the committee but he read directly from the letter the FBI
5: sent to her husband. Or she wouldn't be shucking and jiving with our black men in action, you dig? Like all she wants to integrate is the bedroom and us black sisters ain't gonna take no second best for our men, so lay it on her, man, or get her the hell out of blank. It's signed, a soul sister. A particularly effective technique as reflected by the memorandum Schwartz immediately followed Smothers
2: with a list of six other examples of FBI disinformation campaigns. Like the story about a group of Unitarians who went to the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Agents in the FBI field office in Chicago signed up to offer housing, listing fake names and addresses.
4: The tactic had its designed effect uh, because according to FBI documents, the persons who went out to look for these houses made, quotes long and useless journeys to locate the addresses.
2: Years later, I asked Schwartz why the committee chose to focus on something so trivial.
4: Why do you decide out of hundreds of other examples to mention the effort to confuse white, middle-class, Unitarian people coming to a political convention? It's because people who are going to say gee, that could have been me, you know.
2: But the senators conducting these hearings didn't just want to spark empathy. They wanted to make headlines.
3: The most dramatic testimony today involved the surveillance of Martin Luther King. The committee staffer has described in detail attempts to discredit and to destroy King, to try to turn his followers against him, even to find another idol for black Americans.
2: It was through the church committee hearings that America learned of the FBI's poison pen letter to King.
3: Good evening, Senate investigators charged today that the FBI at one time sought to blackmail the late Martin Luther King
4: into committing suicide. The evidence in memos and
3: other FBI documents... Is
4: part of- the idea that the FBI was, you know, trying to destroy people or ultimately, like with Martin Luther King, wanting to get people killed, Those were amazing things they were doing.
2: Here's Schwartz back in 1975, describing the letter to Senator Church and the other committee members.
4: It was found in the files of Mr. Sullivan, uh, who was the assistant director of the FBI and was heavily involved in these programs.
2: William Sullivan. You might remember him. He was the one who typed the letter and put it into a package, along with the recordings from bugs the FBI had planted in King's hotel rooms. That package was sent to King's home, where his wife, Coretta, opened it.
4: The document which was found is a draft of the letter, which was the anonymous letter, which was actually sent. Is there any dispute that the letter did, in fact, come from the FBI? Uh, We've heard no dispute of that.
2: William Sullivan never appeared before the committee. He was ill at the time, living in New Hampshire. Senator Walter Mondale, later Vice President under Jimmy Carter, traveled to Sullivan's home and deposed him.
5: He was J. Edgar Hoover's right-hand man. Very bright guy.
2: Sullivan wasn't just the author of the suicide letter. He was the main architect of COINTELPRO.
5: When I questioned him, Hoover, of course, had been dead for a couple of years. And I think he wanted to talk. I think he wanted to get this off his chest. He wanted to share some of the abuses and excesses that often he and Hoover cooked up. We spent a full day listening to this. It was a fascinating day. That part of the record, I don't know how many people read it, but that part of the record is really extraordinary, don't you think?
2: I wouldn't know. And no one else outside the committee would either. Sullivan may have unburdened himself to Mondale that day, but the deposition has been under seal ever since. All we have are select snippets of Sullivan's interview, which appeared in the committee's final report. Even those few quotes reveal the FBI's breathtaking disregard for the law. The one thing we were concerned with was this, Sullivan said. Will this course of action work? Will it get us what we want? Will we reach the outcome that we desire to reach? As far as legality is concerned, morals or ethics, it was never raised by myself, or anybody else. Sullivan's deposition isn't the only piece of history still hidden from view. The church committee held over 150 hearings, but most of those were closed hearings, opportunities for senators to ask questions that couldn't be asked in public. Like the Sullivan deposition, the closed hearings are under a 50-year seal, which means the documents could be made public in 2025.
0: I have top-secret security clearance. I still do not have access to this material. It is closed, and it is held under the jurisdiction of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the church committee's uh, successor committee.
2: That's Kate Scott again, the U.S. Senate historian.
0: In 2025 and 2026, these materials will technically fall outside of that 50-year rule. However, Given the nature of much of these materials, I believe that these materials will not be available soon after that 50-year rule expires.
2: And then there's the information that no one knows and will never know, not because it's under seal, because the documents containing it have been destroyed. One of Hoover's aides told a congressional committee that after Hoover died, he'd locked the director's personal office. But that's not where the files were. They were in the office of his personal secretary, Helen Gandy. And as she told a committee, after Hoover's death, she destroyed 45 drawers worth of documents.
0: Everything in the
2: personal files as I reviewed them was destroyed. Gandhi claimed the material was just personal papers, but Mark Gittenstein, a lawyer for the church committee, found something different.
3: And what I discovered was that there were two sets of files maintained in Hoover's personal office. One was was labeled at the top, official and confidential, sensitive files. There was a file on Dr. King. Now, it wasn't the whole Dr. King file, but it was important portions of the file. So that was one set of files.
2: Gittenstein also found a second set of files, the personal and confidential files.
3: Now what was disturbing about what I found was the official and confidential files were all there, okay? A through Z, it was an alphabetical order. But the personal and confidential files only were A through C, okay? D through Z were gone. The reason I remember the A through C is because there was a folder under B for black bag jobs.
2: What was in D through Z? Lost to history. More after the break.
1: You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. My
2: best guess is that I've spent about 150 hours reading the church committee's final report. There are six volumes, but there are glaring omissions in the report that for a long time, I couldn't understand. The committee looked into the FBI's harassment of Martin Luther King, but they never asked about King's assassination or the FBI's curiously limited investigation of it. They started down these roads. Then, they abruptly stopped. The committee called two men to testify, James Adams, Deputy Associate Director of the FBI, and Raymond Winall, Assistant Director of the Bureau's Intelligence Division. Senator Church asked Adams why the FBI was so fixated on King, and Adams said essentially, We were trying to figure out if he was under communist influence. And then Adams said he couldn't discuss this in more detail, that it was connected to a highly secretive ongoing operation. Ongoing operation? King had been dead for seven years by that point. Why couldn't they discuss communist influence on a dead man? But Senator Church didn't pursue it. And now I know why. Before the hearing, Ray Winnall met with Frank Church in a secure chamber in the Senate office building.
6: Assistant Director uh, Ray Winnall actually went up to um, the hill with a picture.
2: John Fox is the historian of the FBI. The picture he's talking about is of a man named Morris Childs.
6: The picture of Morris with... Brezhnev, and uh, several other um, high-ranking Soviets.
2: When all told Church that this guy, Morris Childs, was the reason they couldn't speak openly in the hearings because Morris and his brother Jack were FBI double agents. Morris Childs was an early member of the Communist Party USA.
6: Morris especially rose to have uh, senior leadership positions in in the Communist Party of the United States by World War II. He was the editor of The Daily Worker, which was the the principal newspaper of the party.
2: But in the mid-50s, Childs fell out with the party, and then he was recruited by the FBI.
6: Starting in 1958, Morris goes to Moscow and other parts of the communist world, especially China and Cuba, um, Prague, you know, so forth. Morris was meeting with all of the high-level communist officials in those countries he visited. He would meet with Khrushchev. He was meeting with, you know, the, the Politburo members. You know, he'd go to China and he would meet with Deng Xiaoping. He would meet with Castro if he went to Cuba.
2: This was unparalleled unprecedented access, Morris Childs made 52 trips over more than 20 years, giving the FBI a constant window into the inner workings of the communist leadership around the world. And he would come back
6: and he would write up extensive memos with the FBI's help on all that he learned.
2: Morris wasn't just bringing intelligence back. He was also bringing money. Under Hoover's watchful eye, Childs was the main conduit for cash coming from the Soviet Union into America. Morris would bring the money in, and his brother Jack would hand it out to Communist Party chapters around the country.
6: But of course, first the FBI takes down all of the the numbers on the bills that, that Jack's covertly given, and they track that money and how the Communist Party is using it. So they know at all times, you know, in a sense where most of the funds that the Communist Party has are going.
2: The mission that Morris and Jack Childs were working on was known as Operation Solo, and it couldn't have been more secret. Solo had its own offices at the bureau, its own filing system.
6: They kept the dissemination of the intelligence very, very Um, tightly held. In fact, within the Bureau itself, oh gosh, you probably had less than a dozen and a half people at any one time who knew about the thing.
2: No one in the government, outside of that small group of people in the FBI, knew the identity of the men behind Operation Solo.
6: Morris and and his FBI handlers write information up into a memo. The memo is then given to the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, the head of CIA. Um, And they're basically allowed to read the memo, and then the FBI takes back the actual physical memo. And they're cautioned, you know, we, we cannot compromise this source's identity.
2: So when Ray Winall told Frank Church about Morris Childs, He was sharing intelligence not even presidents were privy to. Remember, back in 1963, Hoover went to Attorney General Bobby Kennedy and to President John F. Kennedy and said he wanted permission to start spying on King. Give me these powers, he said, because King is a communist, or at least his advisor is, Stanley Levison. The Kennedys asked Hoover how he knew this, but he wouldn't tell them who his source was that source was Operation Solo.
6: Because of Morris's role in, and Jack's role in identifying Stanley Levison, and one of Dr. King's um, close advisors as a Communist Party member who actually had had ties with Soviet intelligence, um, Morris's identity was very clearly at risk.
2: Hoover never revealed his source to Kennedy or to President Lyndon Johnson. Or to President Richard Nixon. But now that secret was in jeopardy. If Frank Church and his colleagues started asking questions about why the FBI thought King was a communist, the questions would lead to Stanley Levison. And then from Levison to Jack Childs and from Jack to Morris. If the Church Committee tugged on that thread, the entire operation would be compromised. And Morris Childs, who was still traveling to Russia, would be in mortal danger.
6: At the most basic level, you were talking about Morris's life.
2: Frank Church made a choice to protect the Childs Brothers and Operation Solo.
6: And so Church actually um, backed down, at least from pursuing the origins of that investigation.
2: Ray Wynall himself talked about his interaction with Frank Church in a 2004 documentary.
6: He categorically assured us that neither he nor any member of his staff would ever raise any questions publicly or privately that might compromise Solo, and he kept his word.
2: Whenever committee members probed too deeply into the FBI's treatment of Dr. King, Church would intervene, shifting the questioning onto something else, deflecting away. In April of 1976, the Church Committee wrapped up its work leaving many questions not just unanswered, but unasked. The Department of Justice briefly took up the baton, conducting its own investigation into the FBI's handling of the King assassination. They found some serious errors, but when I read the report years later, that wasn't what bothered me the most. It was this. The Department of Justice recommended that all the tapes generated from the surveillance of Dr. King be destroyed destroy the tapes, destroy the transcripts, destroy the entire King file. According to the report, and I quote, these may be sought by King's heirs and representatives. Worse still, they may be sought by members of the public at large under the Freedom of Information Act. They're talking about people like me, people who have uncovered the FBI's failure to explore a conspiracy to kill King people who found the loose threads and pulled. Next time on My Fugitive.
3: The FBI never made a concerted effort to check out the possibility of a Ray family conspiracy in the
4: assassination. The bureau was so heavily weighted against King that it affected its ability to rationally and fairly carry out the investigations. The committee has circumstantial evidence suggesting that James Earl Ray knew people who might have known that money was being offered for King's death. The FBI didn't want to go near a conspiracy investigation, because if they had done it, they would have found their own unlawful activity.
2: My Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina gildan Our producers are Kat Aaron, Agaranish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins-Somerville, with additional production support from Sandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell, with support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Research and fact-checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown and Will Bigwood. This episode features original composition by Hannes Brown, original music by David Einmo, and music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. To see photos, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at myfugitivepodcast and visit our website at myfugitivepodcast.com.